Something I've learned as uh, I've been preaching for a while uh, here at this church for ten and a half years. Most Sundays, standing up and having to say something, right? Um, I open up a passage and I ask myself each week, what does this passage say? And I want to say that. I don't want to say something else. I don't want to insert my own agenda. The tricky part of that is you end up saying over the course of 10 and a half years, over the course of 20 years, over the course of 30 years, you really only end up saying about a dozen things. Just over and over and over again. Because Scripture, from passage to passage, the authors of Scripture are not concerned with giving you new things all the time. The authors are not concerned with, have they heard this already? This was in the Old Testament already. We need to give them something new. Let's figure out some world dilemma. Let's figure out a problem. Let's give them the answer to the black holes or something. Uh, No, it's sort of several themes that the Bible massages over and over and over again. So, I guess it would be a compliment if somebody said, you know, Lucas only preaches a few things, just different ways. He has different intros and sometimes different illustrations and he uses different passages, but they're the same things. Hopefully, that's, if that's true, that's because I'm, I'm trying to stick to what the passages are saying. Now, one of those prevalent themes, we're going to see it over and over again in Mark, but it's throughout the Gospels, it's throughout the New Testament, it's throughout the Old Testament is that it's really easy to be a fan of Jesus. It's easy to follow Jesus uh, because he's so quotable, right? I remember one time going to the Baha'i Temple. Where is that? Skokie? Evanston? Uh, Wilmette? Close enough. Uh... I remember watching the video that they played to show you how the temple started and how the construction happened, and it's a beautiful, beautiful temple, uh, architecturally speaking. And then after the video, I walked out, and the, the host, the lady, the, the deaconess, I don't know what she was, I, oh, what would you think? How do you like it? Oh, you know, I told her I'm, going, I'm attending Trinity, and I don't know if I told her I was required to do that for a class. Uh, but she realized I was a Christian, so she starts quoting Jesus. I remember thinking to myself, well, if you just quote the very next line, that kind of blows up your whole thing. But just select quotes, but very quotable. Just take making his sermons into like fortune cookie, cookie lines, you know. Just, it's nice, it's good on a t-shirt, it's good on a bumper sticker, it's good to remind yourself of, it's, it's good for positive thinking. It's good for self-improvement to use Jesus quotes because he had so many positive things to say. If you kind of turn aside all the stuff he taught about hell and things like that, just focus on the other things. It's easy to be a fan. It's easy to be a fan of Jesus when church is cool. And you come in and uh, there's music, maybe you like music, there's people, maybe there's people of your age bracket, maybe there's people that have kids your same age, and oh, that's cool, we could do play dates. That's a nice advantage of going to church. You know, we have potlucks and there's, you know, we have times where we can eat and and talk, and it's great. You build friendships. It's easy to be a fan of Jesus, uh, but it's, it's hard sometimes to discern between being a fan and a true follower. And not every fan is a follower. Not everyone that rallies around Jesus and proclaims His name and likes Jesus 
is saved. Not everyone who is good with Christianity is good with Christ. So what we see in this passage, we see two types of people put next to each other in a contrast. And it begs the question, which one are we? We're going to find that in Mark chapter 3. If you need a Bible, uh, one of our guys will bring a Bible to you. Just slip your hand up. Um, Mark is the second gospel, the second book in the New Testament. It's the shortest of the gospels, but it's action-packed. He compresses a lot of the episodes and moves rather quickly through it. He gave us a review of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is walking around healing people. He's healing fevers. He's healing paralysis. He's healing lepers. All he has to do is say a word and touch them, and, and diseases are removed. Demons are removed. Uh, he is powerful. He is authoritative. And all the while, he's teaching, and he's presenting the gospel. Repent and believe. The kingdom is at hand. And we get to chapter 3. Mark kind of backs up a little bit, and he wants to tell us about these crowds. Look at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Pass forward a little bit to verse 20. When Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now you might go, it's easy to get judgy, right, when we read these people. Who in their right mind, you're out of your mind, telling Jesus that he's out of his mind. What is wrong with you? But they love Jesus. They love him as a brother. They love him uh, as family. They love love him as a friend. And he is a magnet. For every disease-ridden person, unclean person, cramming the house to touch him. He is a magnet for demoniacs. I mean, people come, they look kind of normal, maybe, but as soon as they get around Jesus, I don't know what's happening. We don't get a lot of details. Are they, are they yelling, screaming, throwing people around? Obviously, they're yelling something out about the nature of the, uh, Jesus' identity. I know who you are, the Son of God. And they're not saying it like worshipful, but it's antagonistic. That's scary. So you got diseased people, generally unclean people. By unclean, I don't mean they haven't washed their hands. I mean they can't approach the temple. And if they touch you, you can't go to the temple. It's a prominent Old Testament theme. And they're pressing on Jesus because they know that he is a source of healing and relief for their physical 
ailments. So when we see this crowd, we see that this passage begins and ends with the crowd. It begins with the crowd following him in verse 7. They're coming from all over the place. Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan River, and from around Tyre and Sodom. They're coming from all over the place. Jews, Gentiles, old people, young people. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and Jesus had told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. That's just strategic, right? Jesus gets in the boat, pushes off the shore a little bit, and there, some of them are willing to kind of wade into the water, and he just backs up a little bit, and now the boat is his pulpit, just so he doesn't get physically crushed by this crowd. We've all seen the Facebook videos of the Black Friday videos of people stampeding each other to get to a TV. That's just for a TV. What if they guaranteed, not a TV, but your cancer will be gone? What if you just bring your crippled little kid to him and that kid can now play soccer with all the other kids? Forget the TV, man. You're going to stampede. And so these people, they're out of their minds trying to get to Jesus. He's got to get in a boat because the crowds are going to physically, literally crush him, not crush his spirits, right? Physically kill Jesus, just the weight of the crowd. And then it tells us in verse nine, or rather verse 20, that when they're back at the home, the crowd gathered again to the point where they couldn't even eat. Now this isn't totally new. In chapter one, you remember that uh, after he started his ministry, Mark tells us in verse 45, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. Jesus couldn't just walk into a town like, hey guys, if you can't walk into a place openly, how can you walk into a place? secretively, put a hat on, a baseball cap and shades, whatever their ancient version of a disguise would be, the mustache with the fake nose or something, because if you don't, you're going to die. You can't even enter the town. In chapter 2, you remember when the paralytics broke open the roof? I mean, uh, the friends of the paralytic broke open the roof to drop their friend down to get healed by Jesus? Why are they breaking open a roof? Are they just vandals? No, you couldn't even get to the door because it was so crowded. So Mark has been dropping these hints. Jesus had lots of fans. Jesus had lots of people clamoring for his attention. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to get what they needed from him. And Mark describes crowds nearly 40 times before you even get to chapter 10. That's a lot of mention of crowds. Now, not one of those mentions does Mark ever mention repentance or faith or worship or that the crowds gave glory to God. No. What does he consistently mention? Well, the kind of things he mentions here. Why are they crowding around him in verses 7 through 9? Why are they pressing? Why are they coming from all over the place? Because they heard all that he was doing. Verse 10, what was he doing? He healed many. So they want the healing. They want physical relief. They're not following him for what he's saying and what he's preaching. They're following him for what he's doing. That's the agenda of the crowds. Mark does not present crowds as a mark of success. He's not saying, look how successful Jesus' ministry was. So many people came. He uses crowds as a mark of danger. 
these crowds are going to kill him. They're going to kill the source of, maybe not intentionally, but they're, they're going to crush the only one that can save them because they don't, they don't get it. So they're not after him for his message. They're after him for his abilities, for what he can do for them. In the Gospel of Mark especially, crowds don't represent success of ministry. They represent fame. They represent attraction. They represent fickleness. Where were those crowds when he got arrested? Were they the same ones chanting, crucify him? I got what I needed from him. Or, you know what? I never got what I needed from him. It was so crowded, he didn't even pay attention to me. Kill him! Who knows what their reasoning is, but in the beginning of the gospel, the crowds are chasing him down for healing, and at the end of the gospel, the crowds are the ones chanting, kill him! And so the crowds don't represent a successful ministry. They represent attraction and how people can easily be uh, attracted to following Jesus as a fan. But if you draw a line on the sand and ask them to be a disciple, not so much. He takes 7 through 12 and talks about his ministry to the crowds. And 20 to 21, he talks about his ministry to the crowds. got so overwhelming. His family wanted to seize him. And that word is it's almost violent. They didn't want to just tap Jesus on the shoulder and say, hey, Jesus, maybe you should take a time out. They were whispering in the corner like, hey, man, if four of us grab him, we could probably overpower him. Not to beat him up, but to force him to at least grab a bite to eat. Then in the middle, 13 and 19, we have something else that Mark inserts. He kind of splits open his own paragraph and drops something in the middle there to capture your attention. So his talking about crowds is like the bookends, and what's the stuff in the middle? That's what he wants you to pay attention to. It's his call of the disciples. They're not the crowd. They're different from the crowd. They're called out from the crowd. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, you look at this list of disciples, you see a contrast with these crowds, these fickle crowds, these crowds that are pressing him, these crowds that are crushing him. Instead, you see a select group of people that Jesus calls out from that crowd. They are different from the crowd. Here's a few ways in which they're different. He goes up into a mountain. Maybe this is one of his ways to escape some of the crowd. Some of them aren't handling the altitude. Some of them aren't fit enough to hike with Jesus. I don't know. But he's going up this mountain, ascending, and, and he's thinning out the crowd. And there he calls to himself certain men. 
you get a little bit of a flashback of Exodus when you have Mount Sinai, and it's at Sinai that Moses kind of strikes the covenant, or God strikes the covenant with his people through Moses. He's saying, you're my people, and by being my people, here's the deal. I'm going to be this to you, and you're going to be this to me. And he does that at this mountain. Where, what mountain is Jesus on? doesn't matter. Mark just wants you to think mountain, ascension, calling. It echoes God constituting his people, and Jesus, as, as God himself, is reconstituting God's people. We're not crowds. We're not fickle. We don't just chase after what we can get from God. This is different. I'm calling you out from among them, and I'm making you something else. We could do a whole sermon on just verse 13. He went up on the mountain, and who did he call? Whoever he felt like. He called to him those whom he desired. And what happens when Jesus calls to himself someone that he desires to call to himself? What happens? They come. It's an overpowering call. It's not an option. He doesn't present it to you and like... Door number one or door number two, which one do you want? He takes over because if he didn't, you'd just be in the crowd. You would just want from Jesus what you can get from Jesus. You're not going to want to be a disciple. It costs too much. Jesus is saying, come follow me to the cross. Now that's not fun. How about I follow you to healing? He's saying, no, 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 this is different from the crowd. And look, Jesus didn't smack people around in the crowd. You disrespectful people, leave me. Why do they think he was out of his mind? Because he kept healing them. He kept showing and demonstrating that he's the Messiah. So he's not doing this out of spite to the crowd, but he's doing something different with these few disciples. Goes up in this mountain, and he calls them to himself with what theologians call an effectual call. A call that's effective. Not a call that may or may not happen, but a call that happens because Jesus is the one calling. So he calls those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. Now here, the number twelve, also we talked about that mountain experience and him calling those twelve tribes before him at that mountain and saying, here's our covenant. Here's Jesus saying, we're kind of redoing Sinai now. All that Sinai pointed toward, this is what we're doing. We're up in a mountain. I'm the voice of Yahweh. I'm the burning bush. I'm the angel of the Lord, and I'm telling you, you're my people. I'm calling you out from among the crowds, and I'm making you my people, and I'm choosing 12, and it's hard not to think of those 12 tribes that they represent as God's people. So those are the connections that Mark wants you to see. But he pointed them, and then he tell, Mark tells us whom he named apostles. Now, you might have been asked, what is an apostle? Maybe you've been to a church where they have a Apostle Frank is going to come and speak to us today. And maybe that rubs you the wrong way. Like, Apostle? I would never refer to myself as an Apostle, capital A. Because when you read through the New Testament, when you get to Acts chapter 1, you remember Judas is gone. He betrayed Jesus. That was to fulfill Scripture. Jesus wasn't, oops, I chose Judas? What a mistake. No, he intentionally chose Judas to fulfill prophecy that he would be betrayed. Right? And when you get to Acts chapter 1, there's 11 disciples. There's 11 apostles. And they say, we need to choose a 12th. We need a 12th man. 
So let's, uh, we got Matthias and we got Barabbas and let's cast lots and God is going to pick the one that we want. We ha- it has to be a guy that spent physical time with Jesus. Fast forward later, Paul is trying to defend himself as an apostle, if you remember, and people are like, nah, you're not an apostle, you weren't one of the twelve. And what is his argument? He says, I've been given a message by Jesus personally. You remember on the road to Damascus, he gets knocked off his horse, Jesus shows up. We don't get that really anywhere else. Jesus shows up. John sees Jesus in a vision. This ain't a vision. Jesus in his resurrected body shows up and calls Paul to his ministry, and Paul uses that as a defense to be an apostle, capital A. So there are no apostles today, capital A, meaning there are no people today that can write, write you a letter, and then you can add it to your Bible. You know, second Itaskins. You know, just add it there. Because dude wrote it. He says he's an apostle. I don't know. Went to a really good seminary. Now, there aren't apostles today because we don't write scripture anymore. Why don't we do that? Because there's no one around today that spent physical time with Jesus, which was a requirement in Acts chapter 1. But there are apostles today, small a. There's lots of words like that in the Bible. The word angel. Are you an angel? Am I an angel? Well, the word angel means messenger. Am I giving you a message right now? Well, yeah, I'm an angel. But it depends what you mean by angel. Angel like the spiritual beings? Obviously, I'm not. Maybe some of you think I am. I'm not, I'm telling you. Same thing with apostle. Apostle means sent one. Someone who's been commissioned to do something. On official business, that's an apostle. Am I an apostle, small a? Yeah, I'm doing that right now. I'm on official business giving you a message from the Lord. Are you an apostle when you're in Starbucks and you're talking to someone, giving somebody the gospel? Yeah, you're being an apostle, small a. And what Mark, what Mark is doing here is he's giving us a call of these 12. They will function as apostles, capital A, but that's not really what he's trying to get at here. He's trying to show us how their apostles, small a, different from the crowd. This is just about discipleship, period. And if you're reading the Greek, if you're reading the original language, the word appointed is made or created. He made the twelve. He created the twelve. He made them. I love that. He wasn't just kind of looking at a crowd and going, hmm, you and um, you, and how about you? I'm making you. What did he do, what did he do when he called the fishermen out of the boats? I'm going to train you to be disciples of men. I'm going to train you to be fishers of men. That's not what he says. He said, I'm going to make you. Fishers of men. Jesus is creating something here in them. It doesn't have anything to do with their talents. It doesn't have anything to do with their backgrounds. It doesn't have anything to do with their qualifications. There's nothing here about their qualifications. There's nothing here about how much time they spent with them, how, how many classes they went through, how many books they read, how many quizzes he gave them. He made them. That's the point. The point is he made them. Like God makes Adam and Eve out of nothing. He can make a disciple out of just nothing. Out of any background. Out of any education. Any church experience. He can make a disciple. His disciples are made. They're created. They're called. And what does he want to do with them? What is the point of being an apostle, small a, or a disciple? Well, it says in verse 14. Here's how you are different from the crowd. Are you a fan of Jesus, or are you truly a follower of Jesus? Do you just kind of 
look at it from the outside and enjoy it and take what you can enjoy, or are you truly in? Well, do you function the way he wants them to function? Look at what he says. He appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, sent ones. So your question there is, if you knew what the word apostle meant, you'd be like, sent to do what? And then he tells you. So that they might, A, be with him, and B, send them out to preach and have authority over demons. So you're going to do two things as my disciples. You're going to be with me, and you're going to, be, go, you're going to go out there and preach, and when any demons get in your way, you'll cast them out with the authority that I give you. You're going to spend time with me, and you're going to spend time with people. Your time with people is going to be on a ministry basis, communicating to them what I'm teaching you. You cannot be a Christian and do one of the two. As a Christian, as a disciple, you do both that are related to each other. So, sometimes it might, you might have a Christian who's tempted to spend a lot of time with Jesus. Love going to church, love singing those worship songs, downloaded the Spotify app, right? Love those songs. I love spending time with Jesus, love doing my devotions in the morning, spending time with the Word. I, I'm through my third journal. I'm through my third Moleskine in one year. You know, I'm just journaling like mad. I just love spending time at the feet of Jesus. But then when you go to work, you go to school, does anyone even know? Does anyone even know that you spent time? You're not on mission? You don't talk to people about the Lord? You might have Christians who are the opposite. Talk a lot about Jesus. Every Thanksgiving dinner, they're trying to you know, revive the entire family, and they're trying to you know, preach a sermon, and people are like rolling their eyes. And Every phone conversation, always tying it to Jesus. Everything's Jesus. Everything's about how much you know, Jesus wants them to change, and they're, they're very preachy. Do they really spend quality time with Jesus? Do they really know things? Are they like, nah, forget theology. Theology is like for, you know, stuffy people that don't do anything. We need to be out in the world feeding the hungry and helping the oppressed and delivering the message of the gospel. But if you're not spending time learning what Jesus is teaching, then you're running on fumes out there. And what Jesus is saying here is, here's how you're different from a crowd. The crowd that crushes, the crowd that presses, here's how you're different. You're different because you spend time with me, and then as I'm filling you up, you go out and spill it out to other people. You can't just stay out there because you're going to run on empty, and you can't just stay in here because you're just engorging yourself on what I'm teaching you, and, and you're not doing anything with it. The rhythm of life of a disciple is to spend time with Jesus and minister it to other people. Spend time with Jesus, minister it to other people. Grow in the, your understanding of the gospel, deliver the gospel to other people. That's the mission of a disciple. That's what it means to be called and sent. Of course, those of you who have been around long enough, you can fast forward your mind to the Great Commission when Jesus is about to ascend and he tells the disciples, go to all the ends of the earth and do this. How can they possibly go to every end of the earth? Every end of the earth hasn't even been reached now. Well, because the disciples pass discipleship on to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. That means that mantle is on our shoulders. To spend time with Jesus and preach. Now, by preaching, you're communicating the Word of God. It doesn't have to be a sermon. We're not asking you to 
stand up at work, on your desk, overlook all the cubicles, and then start with an introduction, and then say, if anyone doesn't have a Bible, I'll have somebody pass it. Hey, Frank, pass them some Bibles, you know. We're not saying sermon. But what he's saying is, when he says preach, he's saying communicate the gospel to people. You can't be an incognito Christian. You can't be like an undercover. You're not called to be undercover. That's not this religion. This is supposed to be loud and in your face. Not obnoxious and in your face, but obvious. And he does that with this group of 12 men that are going to have authority to cast out demons when they get in the way and to communicate God's word to people. And you look at this list and you've got fishermen, you've got these guys, James and John, who the best that scholars can figure out, the reason why they're called sons of thunder is because of their temper. And then there's episodes as you read through the Gospels where these guys are, yeah, yeah, that, that fits. These guys are they're definitely uh, thunderous in their personalities. Maybe not the easiest to get along with. And these disciples are not very mature. Remember when they approached Jesus and they're like, hey, hey, Jesus, we've got a good, really good idea. How about when you reign, I'm on your right and, I'm, and he's on your left. And then the brother's like, no, 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 I'm on the right and you're on the left. No, we figured this out this morning. They start arguing right there and Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. All that they went through and Thomas is like, no, 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 I don't believe it. I don't believe it. They're like, dude, we've seen him. No, no, until I can t- even seeing Jesus. No, I got to touch it. Disciples have a hard time figuring out who Jesus is. He keeps telling them, it's time for me to go. It's time for me to be the suffering servant. And when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter wants to fight and pulls out a sword, right? Starts chopping people. Peter, Jesus is like, no, man. No, I'll go with you to the death. Yeah, right, man. This cute girl is going to come up to you, right? And she's going to be like, oh, aren't you a disciple? And you go like, no, 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 not me, not me. Man, she's cute. Who knows what he was thinking? And you're just going to betray me, not with men with swords and spears and shields. You're going to betray me because a, a girl asked you, are you a follower? And you couldn't even say yes. And he's at the top of the list. Every discipleship list we get, he's at the top. You got Simon the Zealot and at the end of verse 18. What were Zealots? Capital Z. This was a group of Jews that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Now, none of the Jews were like happy about the Roman government, but the Zealots were, it was another notch. They were ready to be assassins if they needed to. They'll cut throats. They'll kill people to overthrow the Roman government. And who do you think would be on their top list of targets. Like if you if you go into their man cave and they have pictures up with darts, right? Who's at the top? Who's got who's most riddled with dart tips in their man cave? If you're a zealot. Not the Roman guards, not Caesar, not even Herod, but the Jews themselves who disgrace, dishonor their own people, their own family, to make a buck off of the oppression of their own people, the tax collectors. Isn't that in the list? You got Matthew, who we know from other scripture was Levi, and Mark just finished telling us about Levi's call. He's sitting at a tax collector booth, and Jesus said, follow me, let's go. The effectual call, follow me, let's go. And what does Levi do? He goes. 
and then gets his name changed. How can you have Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the previous tax collector, in one group? You know, there's a lot of uh, church strategy books out there. and Some of them talk about the need to be homogenous. What does homogenous mean? Well, H-O-M-O means same, right? And genius, the kind of people that you're attracting. You should, you should be a church that kind of attracts the same kind of people because people like other people that are the same. And so that helps you generate attendance. It helps you generate a crowd. But Jesus isn't interested in generating a crowd. He's interested in creating a new kind of people that has nothing to do with having the same hobbies or being the same age or having the same backgrounds. He's taking 12, and if you were choosing 12 out of thousands and thousands of people in these crowds, you can choose 12 guys that are going to get along because they're the same. But no, he's got fishermen, he's got tax collectors, he's got a zealot assassin dude, who knows, in one group. And no mention of their background, no mention of their training, no mention of what makes them have the right stuff. What it takes to be a disciple is recognize you don't have the right stuff. But Jesus makes something new. This is why we talk about being a new creation. Not just a better version of your old self, but different. And your life is not about you anymore. Your life is about spending time with Jesus and then delivering the goods to other people who don't have that experience. And spending time with Jesus and delivering those goods to other people who don't have that experience. So, he's got this ragtag group of disciples. And some of those guys, we don't even know who they are. I mean, we could look at Peter. and Like, yeah, we remember episodes about Peter, Thomas. There's a couple passages. We remember what Thomas did. Further down the list, Andrew. Yeah, remember Andrew grabbed, you know, his brother. But, but then we don't really get a whole lot of mention. Like Thaddeus, we're not even sure who he is. Like, these guys don't get all equal airplay in the gospel. That doesn't mean they're nobodies. It just means that we don't have, they're not all famous. They're not all people that uh, are well accomplished in terms of uh, their resume, how many verses they've been listed in. They're just normal people, guys. They're normal guys with fears and doubts and things that they don't understand yet. And Jesus is patiently working on them and trying to continue his creation of them and his recreation of them. And he's developing them as disciples that deliver the word to people based on the time that they spent learning at his feet. So what's the difference between the crowds and the disciples? The crowds and the disciples are different because the disciples follow Jesus in his mission to advance the gospel and the crowds don't. I thought of a few different contrasts and I thought I'd give them to you. A couple different ways that the crowds are different than disciples. The crowds are on mission to get something from Jesus. The disciples are on the mission that they get from Jesus. Completely changes your agenda. Previously our agenda was to get something nice out of church. To get something nice out of the Bible. 
to help me with my kids, help me with my marriage, help me with my career, help me get my finances straight, attach a few verses and make it holy and religious, but just help me. I want helps. That's my mission. But when Jesus calls you out of that crowd, that's not your mission anymore. Your mission is the mission he gives you, and that's to give the gospel to people by spending time with him. The crowds pursue Jesus for temporary gain. Disciples are pursued by Jesus for eternal gain. The crowds press and crush Jesus to commandeer his services. Disciples are chosen and appointed by Jesus, and he commandeers their services. The crowds want to make something of Jesus that he's not. He's not a healer. He's not just a miracle man. He's not here to wait on you hand and foot to make sure that your life is completely comfortable. That's not what Jesus is. They want to make something of Jesus he is not. Disciples are made by Jesus into something they are not. Probably in here this morning, you don't feel like a missionary. You don't feel like a mouthpiece. You don't feel like an ambassador or a witness. You don't feel like a representative of Jesus. But you are, if you're in Christ, you are. And when we doubt that call, we doubt what Jesus is able to create in us. Our problem is we come with our resumes. I don't have a speaking gift. I don't have a seminary degree. I don't know the Bible as well as other people, so I I can't. And Jesus is going, since when did I ask you to put a resume on my desk? My resume is the only resume that counts. What I do with people. When we approach Jesus, we're we're not disciples because we're going to do something with Jesus. We're disciples because Jesus is going to do something with us. We don't come to him and go, here's what I have, here's what I can do. We come to him saying, I can't do anything, and Jesus says, okay, cool, here's what I can do. So if we're called out from the crowd, and we're disciple, disciple means learner, apprentice, how are we learning Jesus? What are we learning to do? We're learning to be messengers, sent and commissioned, spending time with him, yes, that's why Sundays are so important, growth groups, spending time in your word on your own, that's important, building yourself up, But then doing what with it? Doing what? Taking it to people. Taking it to people. Giving it to them in conversations, in letters, however it happens. But we do it because we're on Jesus' mission. We're not on the crowd's mission. Right? Let's pray.